Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Today's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. All right, <clears throat> should we pray for you, Johnny, and ourselves? Why don't you, yeah, um, why don't you put your hand on your heart and um, maybe one out to Johnny as well. Um, we thank you, Jesus, that you want to speak to us this morning through uh, what Johnny is going to share, Lord. We just, we come expecting you to speak. And I pray for myself and everyone in the room now that you would open our hearts to receive what you want us to receive. I pray now that you would take away defenses. I pray you'd open our ears up uh, to hear from you. And I pray an anointing as well upon Johnny. I pray you'd anoint him for this uh, moment. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, James. Uh, Now, Amy and I spent three and a half years in California, and in that time, we had to learn how to deal with earthquakes. I remember the first of those that, uh, that we experienced, we were actually having a meeting, we worked in a church there, and we were having a meeting in the library, 
and, uh, and things just started to shake. And, and we were, I think, really nonplussed. We didn't really know what was going on for quite a while. It felt like, probably only a couple of seconds, but it felt like quite a while. And of course, everybody else was reacting. And uh, they were going and standing in the door frames. I remember the teaching pastor of the church taking leadership and telling us to stand in the door frame, which we did. And of course, after a little while, the earthquake abated and everything was fine. But it it's quite a symbolic moment, I felt, uh, as we were in this library, this place of learning, and, uh, and here there was this shaking, and I was thinking of this as I was reflecting on a podcast I listened to recently, actually uh, a podcast called Leading, uh, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Some of you know this podcast, and if you're into those things, you might have heard it. They interviewed a chap called Tom Holland. I think we have uh, an image yeah, not that Tom Holland, uh, sadly. This one. Yep, that one. So not the actor, but the historian, Tom Holland. And uh, some of you won't have heard of this guy, uh, but he's a really interesting person. And he talks through in the podcast, this leading podcast, which I encourage you to listen to if you're interested in these sorts of things, his view of what is happening in the Western world at the moment. So that's the world of, that we inhabit, inclusive of America and Australia and Europe and places like that. He's, as I said, fascinating. He's maybe described himself as agnostic. He, he grew up uh, with an Anglican mother, very devout mother, and his father was an atheist. And he somehow kind of lives in the tension of that. He says, says he has moments where he, he, has, he has faith. And then he has other moments where he doesn't have faith. But he was just summarizing his view of where Western culture is at. Now, I'm just going to encourage you. Uh, this is probably a sermon where you're going to have to have your thinking hat on just for a little while. So lean in with me for a minute. So Tom Holland says that Western society has been based on a Judeo-Christian foundation for at least the last thousand years. That's a long time. Everything that we know is steeped in Christian assumptions and Christian tradition. So, it shaped our politics. Now, shaped our politics both on the left and the right. Both the left and the right hold assumptions congruent, consistent with Christian thinking. It shaped our, our sense of what human identity is. In other words, what it means to be a human. That all people are made in the image of God and therefore they're worthy of love and dignity but also that identity is given by God. It's not something that we construct on our own. It shaped our morality, our understanding of what's right and wrong, personally, of what you and I should do with our lives, with our bodies, and with all that we have. It shaped the foundation of our laws, our view of justice. What is just? What is right for societies? Well, we believe, don't we, that everybody's equal under the sight of the law. We believe that uh, people are innocent until proven otherwise. These, again, are foundations of a Judeo-Christian view. We believe that we ought to care for the weak and the poor. Why do we believe that? We believe that because that is drawn from Scripture. That was not part of the Roman world, you know, Might makes right was very much the vision of uh, justice and morality in those times. And so Christianity and Jewish thinking come cross purposes. And yet, says Tom Holland, going back to the vision of the earthquake, we're living in a moment of seismic change. See what I did there? Seismic change. We're living through an earthquake. 
we're witnessing in this cultural moment a transition from a view of the world shaped by Jewish and Christian thought to something else. And it's so powerful that most of us can actually feel it happening as it happens. And the evidence is all around us. As a Christian vision, I've given you one example with Lent. It's just a small example, uh, but it is a significant one, I think. Our sense of how we order time. Reality is shifting, uh, but it goes even deeper than that. Christian vision of human identity, of morality, of justice, are being replaced piece by piece, or at least God is being written out of the center of each of those aspects of our culture, and something else, another vision, is being placed at the heart of them. And here's the, here's the rub. Increasingly, if you're still with me, you're doing well. Increasingly, increasingly, God or Christian thinking is not just seen as irrelevant, but actually is being seen as an obstacle. So to, to follow God is actually increasingly at times being seen as immoral. So it's been a complete shift and reversal. Now this earthquake has had a ser- The lecture ends in a bit, and then we go into preaching. Just, just in case you were wondering. But this is really, really significant because if we don't understand this, we, we won't actually understand what it means to live as Christians in the world that we're in today. We won't know how to live. If we carry on living as if the world isn't shifting, as if we're not in the middle of an earthquake, we're not gonna know how we ought to live, which is really what this whole sermon is about, of course. This earthquake has had a series of massive con- consequences for us. So what are they? Well, I'll try and summarize. There are many, and many of which I don't understand and have not seen or have not read others talk about. But fundamentally, when a society loses its vision of worshiping God, the space has to be filled with something else. And the biblical word for something else is idols. Speaking about such idols, former chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs says this, quote, we make a mistake when we think of idols in terms of their physical appearance. Statues, figurines, icons. In that sense, they belong to ancient times we have long outgrown. Instead, the right way to think of idols is in terms of what they represent. They symbolize power. That is what Ra was for the Egyptians, what Baal was for the Canaanites, what Chemosh was for the Moabites, what Zeus was for the Greeks, and what missiles and bombs are for terrorists and rogue states today. So folks, go home and throw away your statues of Chemosh, Ra, and Baal. Now, obviously, it's a deeper thing, but do you see the sense there, the focus on power? This is huge, I think. That's why I've written it down. I'm about to say it. Understand this. All idols are ultimately about power. What we are seeing in our society is when you replace the worship of the triune God, who is love, all you are left with are competing claims for power. Let me say that again. When you replace the center, uh, from the center of society a vision of a God who is loved, all you are left with is completing, competing claims for power. And because we live in a world that's still tinged with Christianity as a background, the way that you claim power is by asserting your rights as victim. So we have a race for victimhood in our society as a way to gather power. Now, another massive consequence is that when people abandon a shared story, 
The result is widespread division. If you can't agree where you're going with the other people in your car, let's say, you're going to have a fight over the steering wheel. Now, we can talk all we want about diversity in society, but if there is no story essentially binding the people in a society together, you don't end up with diversity, you end up with chaos. Now, diversity is a good thing, so long as there is an agreement about the direction we're headed in. We lack these things in our society, and let me just tell you, our political leaders are not able to deliver these things. These questions cannot be, cannot be delivered by politics. These are profoundly spiritual questions. This is a massive moment, so much so that Tom Holland argues that this is possibly something we will look back on and say, this was as big a moment as the Reformation of the 16th century. Here's speaking about this shared story. You still with me? You're so kind. Jonathan Sachs again says, Judaism is a sustained critique of power. It's about how a nation can be formed on the basis of shared commitment and collective responsibility. It's about how to construct a society that honors the human person as the image and likeness of God. It's about a vision never fully realized but never abandoned of a world based on justice and compassion in which they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful vision. Do you see, I just want to draw your attention to that, those words. Shared commitment, collective responsibility. Unless you have a shared story, there can be no shared commitment and no collective responsibility. Unless you have a shared story, the entirety of a society's stories is reduced to the story of just individuals going about their lives, gaining as much stuff as they can before they die. And that's not enough, is it? Now, the gospel... The gospel is actually reasonably well articulated, I think, by Jonathan Sachs, of course. We would say, as Christians, that what we see in the Bible is not just a vision of a world made right, but we see that in Christ Jesus, God has come to us to establish the kingdom. So the kingdom for us isn't just a future vision of a world based on justice and compassion, but we would say, in the present age, The future has broken in. The king has come to establish a kingdom. And principally, the place of the kingdom being established is the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the king Jesus. And that he calls all people into his kingdom to submit themselves to his kingship, to his lordship. And so through him to build not just better societies, but a better world based on justice and righteousness, based and functioning on the presence of God and run on the fuel of love. That's really why we've been speaking about love these last few weeks. The Christian contribution to the world, a contribution that's responsible, according to Tom Holland, for the entire edifice of Western culture is a unique vision of a God who is love. In himself, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he is love. He doesn't just have love. He is love. 
This is a unique vision and something that we ought not to give away too cheaply. When you replace a God who is love, for, for example, love is love, you lose something very, very significant. And therefore, it is no surprise that we should live in an age characterized by anxiety. Perhaps this is why so many of us are plugged into anxiety right at the core of our beings. Because the foundations are shifting. And we each, I think, intuit that. We each know that. All of this brought to mind for me this week, Psalm 11. And I've been praying this this week. Psalm 11 says, verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This sermon, this is the intro, by the way, I've just done. (laughs) Strap in. This sermon is my answer to that question. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's my answer. My answer is that we need to courageously pursue love like never before. That we need to rediscover the most excellent way, which is the way of countercultural and courageous love. Let's look at this now, 1 Corinthians 13. And yet, Paul says, I will show you the most excellent way. There's a song, actually, one of my favorite worship songs of all time. If I spoke in the tongues of men and angels, but had not love. Look it up, it's on the internet, Kevin Prosh. I would become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing, nada, zilch. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. The context here of this scripture is that Paul is speaking, he's writing to a community, this letter, because this community is in danger of fracturing. Its foundations are being shaken. Factions, groups are forming as the community divides over leadership, over ethics, over theological views, over ethnic boundaries between rich and poor. The church in Corinth, in other words, is much the same, in much the same state as our society is today, at least if you take my fairly dim rendering, I would say, of where we're at. And so when Paul introduces love into his discourse, he's thinking along the same lines I think we are today. He's thinking, how can communities and indeed the world be healed of its inclination toward division and anxiety? He's speaking into an anxious moment. And what does he say? Well, he says that with such situations in view, love is the answer. All you need is love. But what is the love is the question. (laughs) And the reason he can affirm such an outrageous claim that all we need is indeed love is that the vision that he holds of love is enormous. It goes so far beyond the romantic affection, perhaps, of that Beatles song. Erotic obsession of much contemporary music and even the love displayed in faithful friendship bonds, good though they are. This is not the wishy-washy vision of love that so pervades so much of what we see around us. It is not the love that affirms, that demands that we affirm 
Absolutely everything that everyone wants us to affirm without question, so-called tolerance, but it is a love that is willing to be crucified for obedience to God and the truth while offering forgiveness and mercy to those doing the crucifying. The word Paul uses when he refers to this kind of love is agape. Writing about this kind of love, which he calls charity, C.S. Lewis says the following, quote, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of feelings, but of the will. Love sits, it lives in the place where the will lives. So it's deeper than feeling alone, though of course it works its way out in feelings. It's only normal for that to be the case. One writer suggests that it is an overall disposition of the human self. So it's not an action alone, but it's a source of action. Think of it a bit like the soil. The plant bit is the kindness, the patience, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, all the stuff Paul talks about. The soil is the environment. That's the love bit. That's the agape in which all of the fruits emerge. So Paul is not saying... And this, this is the kind of sermon, by the way, I've preached most of my life. Do better! <laughs> Unfortunately, I've exposed you to that. I've, I've placed you under the yoke of the law far too many times. I, I apologize for that whenever I've done that. The answer here is not try harder, do better, church. As if all we are is the do-gooders. That what, di- what divides us from the people in the rest of the world is that we try harder. Whatever else that is, it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're trying hard. If it's anything like my trying hard, we'll make you worse off. (laughs) At least you're trying hard apart from the presence and the power of Jesus. Because grace isn't opposed to effort, is it? It's opposed to earning. There will be effort that we have to put in. But how should we be spending our effort? Trying to grow the fruit of kindness? I would suggest not. We should expend our effort and our energy in pursuing love because the rest will take care of itself. And of course, we pursue love by pursuing God because God is love. If you get God, you get love. And if you get love, you get patience, you get kindness, you get all the other good stuff as well. This is why, and here I'm about to summarize our series This is why we began the series looking at the love, the importance of loving God. And I'll remind you about that today. Church, Trinity Church Nottingham, would you consider that it is yours and yours alone to worship God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, with every breath that God gives you until you drop dead? That is the the commission that is on you as a human being. That is why God made you. He formed you so that you could praise him, not just with your words, but with every decision you make. This is yours to do. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. But together we can do it, do that, and encourage one another. I love what Paul says in Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, we've sung about that, haven't we, this morning? In view of God's mercy that Hannah sang so beautifully about, present your bodies as a, spirit, as a spiritual sacrifice. This is your, as a living sacrifice, rather. This is your spiritual act of worship in view of God's mercy. So there's, that's the vision of worship. The, the, the sacrifice language, it, it, it suggests an altar on which our lives are presented as our act of worship. 
What I mean is this, no hedging your bets, no backup option to a life of worship for God. Give it the beans, wholehearted, give him all that you have and all that you are. No looking back, no half measures, a church on fire. Now a church on fire is a church on fire with love for God. Secondly, as we do that, we find ourselves overflowing with love for each other. I wanna commend you for the way that you do this. It's extraordinary, the way that you love one another. Keep doing it. Keep doing it with all the urgency and passion that you can muster. Many of you have found your way to Trinity on some kind of healing journey. It is an extraordinary grace to us that you would trust us with a season of healing in your life. There are some of you who are coming through that journey and it is time now to display love in service of others. Do you know that you complete your healing when you give it away? So let's love, our neighbor, let's love each other. And then finally, we need to love our neighbor and even our enemies. I think this is the most challenging of anything Jesus ever said. When he said, love your enemies. Oh my goodness. The vision here is that we're to be so saturated in agape that we no longer see a division between friend and enemy when it comes to love. And so love then becomes the ultimate mark of the people of Jesus. It's more excellent than faith and even heroic deeds. As we open our lives to a God who not only has agape love, but is agape love, we can expect this to make an incalculable difference to the way that we experience life today. We will find ourselves becoming more patient, more kind, less apt to envy or boast, less arrogant or rude, and so on. But what I want to talk about today as I land this plane, I want to speak specifically into what this might look like when it comes to that aspect of courage, when it comes to what it means to live a fearless life and to live in fearless love. You may remember that in our second week, we drew on a text, one of my favorites, 1 John verse 4. Now in it, I'm going to read a couple of verses from it in just a moment. John draws a distinction between love and its opposite. What is the opposite of love? I don't know what about you, but I often think that the answer to that should be hate. Of course it's not, not biblically at least. Biblically in 1 John, we find that the opposite of love is fear. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first love does. So fear, not hate, is the opposite of love. Now we usually hate because we're afraid. Fear is the root cause of unlovely behaviors like hatred, which themselves lead to violence and bitterness. Fear is love's opposite. And so at the root of the fear and anxiety we see all around us is an absence of love, an absence of the love of God. And the solution, Paul would say, I think, is love but not any kind of love. I think of fearless love. We are in a moment of cultural, high cultural anxiety, as much as I've said of what is keeping us stable, has kept us stable for a millennia is shifting. Here is my message. An anxious world calls for a fearless church. An anxious world 
calls for a fearless church. And a fearless church is a loving church. The most courageous thing we'll be able to do in the days to come is to love in this agape way. I repeat, this does not mean affirming everything that the world now calls righteousness and justice. It means loving God above all and learning to love what he says is good, right and true. And where what we say is good currently does not align with what he says is good, asking him to change that within us. It means ministering to one another and to the world, even to our enemies, this world-changing love, come what may. It will mean suffering for the world. It will mean being accused of unlovely things, at times by unlovely people. This is the agape love of Christ Jesus for the world. This is the love that Jesus has. And this is why love really is the most excellent way. This kind of love is not easy, and increasingly as a society moves away from its Christian moorings, Christian love, with its unique demonstration of grace and truth, will become less and less culturally acceptable. But we can afford to risk loving in this way. Why? Because God is love all the way down. God is love all the way down. And because we know the story we're living in. And the story we're living in is that love overcomes fear. Love even overcomes death. That's the gospel. You and I can live completely fearlessly and completely freely because love overcomes death. Love wins, but not just any love. Agape love. I'll close with this. Where might the earthquake end? Well, Tom Holland says something like this in his podcast, but Oz Guinness, I recently heard him say, uh, speak about this revolution, this reformation we're undergoing in our culture at the moment. He said, looking forward, there are at least three possibilities. One would be replacement. That our society, the West, makes the decision that we don't need Christianity to offer ideas, it's ideas anymore, ideas of justice, ideas of morality, of law and order and all those things, that perhaps we can find a replacement, that would be option one. Secondly, ruin, doesn't like one, that perhaps we will adopt a pre-Christian perspective in which we don't need to care for the weak, we don't need to care for the poor, that's the second option. Thirdly, Os Guinness says, there may be renewal. That perhaps after all, our society will decide that we do need Christian teaching as our foundation. And perhaps that would be a great renewal in which the church too might be both a catalyst and a beneficiary. I'm giving the last one a go. (laughs) That's, That's the basket in which all of my eggs are going. I'm gonna work with every fiber of my being for as long as I'm alive to see the renewal of the church because I think the renewal of the church and the rediscovery, the church rediscovering its truth will be a blessing to the world wherever the world goes. But it is not inevitable that we will see renewal of Western culture. I do think it's possible, but it isn't inevitable. What the church faces is some quite extraordinary obstacles, many of which are not being fought from without, but are clearly present within the church. The church itself has largely collapsed 
into the same structural problems that we see in the world. So what must we do? Well, shall I end with a poem? This is Robert Frost, just the last stanza. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Church, there are two roads. There is one, the road of fear, and the second one is the road of love. If you choose that road, if we choose that road, if the church in the West chooses that road, I believe it will make all the difference. Should we pray?